Hello, everybody. I'm Hubert, your host. I'm here with uh, Peter Corliss. Uh, Peter is a director of product marketing for StarTree. Um, really excited for him to be talking to me today because I think he's a, an, ex an extremely intelligent person and he has really strong opinions on things that I, you know, that I love to talk about. Um, Peter, can you just give us a little bit of a history about yourself and how you got to StarTree and and anything else you'd like to talk about? Yeah, so I came to Silicon Valley in 1989. I worked uh, for a lot of uh, little companies like Apple Computer eventually and Cisco Systems. And then eventually uh, I got into the world of databases. I worked at Aerospike for a short while, worked for SillaDB for the past five years, and now I'm at StarTree. Nice, nice. Um, when I asked you if you wanted to do a podcast, there was a specific topic you would like to talk about. I think you were a little passionate about it in the last uh, couple of months. Um, so I'd love to kind of just, you know, start that. Um, and it's about like, what is it called? Federated systems, right? Yeah. Well, it begins before that, because if you take a look at what it began with the question of what is it that we're building these days? Data engineers are building platforms. Well, what is a platform? And it got me to thinking about how we had gotten here. I'm back at Cisco Systems. I remember seeing that first website. I worked at Advanced Customer Systems on their first website. We had CGI. And then, of course, like eventually uh, the LAMP stack was born, right? And that, that brings us towards the end of the 90s. Um, and the LAMP stack then was a stack that included everything from the web server through the um, applications that you're doing, the database and the underlying OS. And so since then, we've abstracted uh, stacks to be far more front-end shifted. So like if you take a look at the Jam stack these days, they talk about JavaScript, API, and markup. They don't even care what the backend is. They literally do not. Mm. <laughs> That's the job <laughs> of the API to figure out. And then I thought, well, geez, that means that there's a whole reciprocal uh, kind of underdark you know, like this, this whole, uh, you know, a world underneath the world of the web that has to be defined uh, as to how does, how does the Jamstack actually work on the back end? What do you need to have to, to enable this new front end modernized website that uh, doesn't really have a back end in system? And so hmm. that's really where this came from. And then also there's a lot of people out there. I have to credit my uh, colleague, Tim Spahn, who's at Cloudera now. He's been talking about, uh, for instance, a, a particular stack he calls the Flank stack, which is uh, NiFi, Flink, and Kafka. And if you think about that as a stack, that's that's kind of like a middle portion of, a, of an overall system. Uh, a long while ago, I learned this technical term that you need a Gazinta and a Gazata, right? You need you need a data to come in from someplace and some data, data to go out someplace. Mm. And so even a Flank stack, is kind of like it doesn't have a, a front or a back. It's missing an OLTP system that might be doing your uh, mm -hmm. basic CRUD operations on the front end, and it's missing an analytic system on the back end to make sense of everything you've done. Mm. So, so the whole concept of what is a stack um, really kind of blew up in my mind. And also, again, back when we were inventing these websites, that lamp stack would all fit in a single pizza box on a server somewhere. It would be the, the, the web server, the APIs, 
applications, the database, the operating system will all be running in a single box. And now uh, when you take a look at like just the web server and you take a look at like Nginx, that in and of itself is a cluster of systems. Mm-hmm. And then the microservices that are supporting the APIs, that is also a separate cluster of systems. The database itself is a distributed database, a distributed cluster. So rather than talking about a stack, I thought it didn't make sense anymore because we're talking about clusters of clusters. And that's where I came across, uh, you know, the, the need for an alternative system. And I thought, well, why don't we call these federated systems? And there's positives and negatives to that, which we can get into. So I did a bit of research on some of the topics or the terms that you're you're using so far. So, um, you know, I, I understood what a, a lamp stack is, and I kind of know what a stack is. Yeah, because uh, we're, we're we're kind of rethinking what these terms mean in today's kind of uh, environment. You know, because we uh, we're still kind of using some 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 of these terms that are over twenty years old. Right. What they mean today if we are going to still use them. Um, so we, we're thinking of like the terms like uh, a stack or a platform or a cluster. And then on top, on top of that, from what I'm understanding from your, 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 uh, your, uh, content is a, a federation over all of that some at some capacity. So, um, let's, let's kind of like break that down, for instance. So a stack. What is a stack? So a stack is a, a set of um, tools or systems that work well together to provide mm-hmm. a an application of some kind, right? right. So as opposed so, to uh, right. as opposed to a platform. So when I yeah. first got to Silicon Valley, the first stack I ran into was what was the networking stack, which was the OSI model, right? Mm-hmm. From the from the physical layer and the data link layer, layer one, layer two, up to layer three, which is the IP network layer, all the way up to layer seven, which is supposed to be the application layer. And that was the first stack that we knew in terms of networking. But if you take a look at a LAMP stack or maybe a mean stack, and that was LAMP was originally Linux, Apache server, MySQL, and PHP. Mm -hmm. That was a SQL system. Then the mean stack replaced MySQL with MongoDB, Express, Angular, and Node. Right. So it was, uh, so, but these were, again, these were stacks to side, this designed to run a, a website all within a, a single box. And maybe you'd have like a hot standby in case mm-hmm. of failover. Uh, right. Yeah. Mongo itself, by the way, can be a distributed cluster. Right. So right yeah. there, Mongo itself is not going to just be running in a single pizza box, right? You're going to have a cluster of Mongo servers, one primary, the other's replica sets, right? So there, when you start thinking about moving from LAMP to mean, suddenly you know that you're dealing with a back-endian cluster. Then if you were to, let's say, change out uh, an Apache web server for, let's say, an Nginx server, you're talking about the website itself being a cluster, Mm-hmm. Right. And Mongo being a cluster underneath that. Uh, if you have your um, if you have your scripts basically be microservices, that itself is going to be a microservices cluster. So, again, mm-hmm. the website itself broke into a cluster of clusters. Oh, I see. So so a stack is no longer inter- the its original definition, uh, a set of non uh, uh, HA systems. Uh, that you know that's distributed across uh, a set of computers, 
it has become that this, a stack that are uh, of technologies that they individually are able to scale in high availability and even in disaster recovery scenarios that 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 are separate but still working together as if they were still a stack right exactly and then with a lot of modern websites especially once you start going to let's say so the latest uh variant of this was the jam stack introduced Mm. around 2015 which was just going to be javascript api and markup so really it was just a front-endian side of this equation. Mm. API took care of which back-endian system was going to be. And the API could be, let's say, Stripe, right? So now, as you know and I know, Stripe is driven by Apache Pino, basically by StarTree, mm. right? But so, but all of that is abstracted and hidden away from the web developer. They just they're just going to be calling a credit card process. Right, right. So they don't need to worry about things the way the old-fashioned, you know, well, CI scripts used to. There, be. There, there are two parts to that, right? Like the APIs, these APIs, if they're transactional, they're mm-hmm. going to be talking to a transactional database of some kind, right? Correct. Then, as you ask questions about that transaction, you start to get a different type of database that's pre- providing that information to you in that case, right? Apache Pino. Yes. So, right. So I I apologize for making that too simple. You're correct. (laughs) Completely correct. There's an OLTP system that's actually doing the transaction of the credit card. Mm -hmm. But if you were checking for, let's say, what transactions you've already made, you want to, you know, uh, you wanted to see a rollup of how many uh, uh, credit cards have been processed today, then that's more the analytical side. So you're correct that the Stripe API actually has different APIs depending upon whether you're just uh, processing a credit card or whether you want to run the store. Yeah, let me expand on that a little bit more. So if you think about the LAMP stack or the main stack as it was 20 years ago, they didn't have separate APIs for reads and writes. Right. It was all the same, most likely an OLTP database that was serving an entire application, but that same OLTP database was serving the analytical questions that the application needed in order to provide more, you know, data or data experience for, for that user. Like, where's my food, you know, for instance, or exactly. oh, where's my ticket or, or whatnot. Right. Yeah, and in the world of platform engineering, a plat when we say the word platform, that's to simplify it for your boss's boss. Mm. <laughs> there, there's <laughs> for budgeting, right? <laughs> exactly. It, it's it's all in the platform. Don't worry, boss. Right. But but when you take a look at the platform itself, once you double click on that and explode out the block diagram, you will see that that platform may actually be a half a dozen transactional databases. It could be a number, more than one analytical database. For instance, there might be a data warehouse as well as a real-time analytic database. Hmm, that sounds more like a stack, though. Like, for instance, when I think of a platform, I think of a streaming platform. Like, like okay. I, when I think of it, it provides a specific function, but it provides a service some or some kind of functionality that's really specific to that, that enables things that live on top of it, right? Um, so, so if you're thinking like a database layer, I, I think of like if you had no LTP and OLAP da- database mm-hmm. working together in tandem with like some ETL or ELT going between them and all that being obfuscated by the, the word data platform 
Right. Right. But that, here's, that I could see a problem. But but a platform presumes like kind of a single vertical stack, and it goes down the stack mm. and up the stack, and it's all in kind of like a single vertical holistic thing. But let's take a look at like a, a, a typical telco these days that's trying to do, you know, things like billing. So they're having a system monitoring every single one of the cell phones in their network, and every five minutes they want a, a kind of a check in of all the activity that that cell phone user has been doing. So all of that's going all of that real-time data is going to, let's say, a stream processing or an event streaming system like an Apache Kafka, right? Mm -hmm. From there, then, it's going to be corroborated with, let's say, account information, not from the operational side, but the business side. And so then each one of these, all of the technical attributes of what's going on with the cell phone network is going to be combined with subscriber information. It's going to be decorated, annotated, joined, deduped, you know, there's going to be a whole lot of processing being done with, on top of just the streaming of it. And then once all that happens, then that has to be sent to another system for further analytics, right? So that right. It, if this was all in a stack, you'd presume that some magical box could take care of this. But we're talking about different sorts of um, aggregators, data aggregators from the real-time, you know, cell events. You're talking about uh, stream processing, you're talking about real-time analytics, and as well as your transactions like this. Mm -hmm. It's 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 an end-to-end -end architecture of, again, systems of systems, clusters right. and clusters. Right. So it's not just a stack. When I read your your paper, um, this is an internal internal paper you you provided to me just to kind of an intro, give an intro yes. to what uh, a federated system is. When I when I started reading it, I I was thinking. Um, in the terms of like a like a Trino or a Presto, mm -hmm. right? I don't is is that still what you're thinking of what a, a federated system is? So what's the difference between say a federated system and a federated like just federated data? Okay, so that's a great that's a great thing. So because there are let's go back in history a little bit. Let's go back to the 1980s where IBM realized that people wanted to run on more than just DB2. Right. Sad, sad to say, but we're not all <laughs> DP2 adherents anymore. Right. And so they knew that there were customers that were asking them, can we make a, a query against database X and database Y with the same SQL statement and pull information from all of the different related data sources we can get access to? Mm. And that began as what was known as federated queries or federated database systems. Mm. But really all that was was kind of like a meta query. It really didn't harmonize the, the data systems. It didn't normalize data across them, mm -hmm. right? And anybody who's tried to do data mesh work knows this is, this is a hell of a lot of work done in normalization and rationalization across all these different systems. Mm -hmm. but this is at least the first stab that we had at making federated systems. And so if you take a look at at a lot of papers on IBM at federated systems, they'll be still oriented towards federated database systems. And that was the first attempt to do this kind of work, which was fine, but wasn't sufficient because it presumed that everything would be queryable as SQL and that SQL was the right and proper way of querying every database. Mm. And these days with the heterogeneous data that we have, where you have vector databases, graph databases, SQL and NoSQL databases, it's 
it becomes a lowest common denominator. You may be able to query all your systems, but are you actually getting the nuance of the actual data model itself mm -hmm. if you flatten everything to an SQL? Right, right. Uh, we also saw kind of a specialized variant of this where we saw federated search, mm. where you basically created a kind of a, a meta search system, which would then, you know, drive into each of the individual search engines that you'd want to, uh, to, to, to go against. But again, this is more of a meta system. It's not really treating each of the members based on their specific attributes. So just as an example, there may be uh, more intelligence search options you have on one system than you might have on another. Mm -hmm. And so then the question is, are you doing kind of a lowest common denominator search across all your systems, getting the very worst output from each? Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, hopefully you have some nuance to your federated search and your federated database queries, but... Right. But it's it's basically flattening out all the systems to kind of treat them the same. And these days we know, for instance, here's a, here's an example. Let's say you're running a, a Redis, you know, system, and you're also going to be querying against stuff shoved into S3 buckets. You can do a federated query against all of those, but you shouldn't be slowing down Redis to the speed of S3. Right. So. Coming back to the idea of cluster of clusters and the that 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 epiphany you just had um, between you know Redis and uh, querying Redis and SQL RRSS three at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, let's say you know Redis has its own uh, query engine, right? Right. Uh, S three you could you know put on top of it its own query engine. It doesn't matter what you you know you pick whatever you want. Uh, Hive or whatever, um, in order to bring those uh, those data sets together as one, you have to somehow converge or know how to, uh, like what we call scatter and gather that into a into a, a separate platform that reduces that to something consumable for the, the user, right? The, exactly. And what you just mentioned is like a, a huge thing. Like, do you really want to be doing a full table scan of what's in Redis? Mm. Right. <laughs> because if you do so, uh, you might actually be impacting the real-time latencies of the transactions you're trying to do in Redis. Mm -hmm. So it's maybe it's better to snapshot or like, you know, maybe for some databases using change data capture, and push off the changes that are happening in those transactional systems to an analytical system. Yes. That it's actually cheaper to do that than it is to try and run your analytics at the same place that you're doing your transactions. So, so I love this, where this uh, conversation is going a little bit. So I, now we're, now we're taking data out of the OLTP or the, like the, the application facing data database or data store exactly. and bringing it into a system that is optimized for Harder not, questions, right? Exactly. It's designed and, for purpose for querying. Exactly. But then when we go to the S3 side, we're not, we're not having to go to a hive and have a hive execute that data, query that data where it is and bring that result and gather that back into some, some system, right? Mm -hmm. I think somehow we want to do the same. 
right? It's, it's, is there, there's an optimization step that really needs to be addressed where, um, so going back to the clusters of clusters, right? The lower level clusters or the, the, the source clusters, are they the same as, uh, could they be the same cluster as part of the, the, the thing that's doing the gathering, um, and doing the querying? So I think, right. I think, so this is really interesting because if you take a look at what's going on with federated learning in AIML, hmm. here's an issue where because of data privacy issues, the data that you're trying to run your machine learning algorithms against you, the, the hospital systems, the medical researchers are saying, you don't want us to ship our data to you anyway. Our data is going to stay in our domain. Right. Hidden for privacy reasons. Ship us the, um, the bottle mm. and we'll run our analytics and return to you an optimized result, you know, an optimized model. And so then you are doing aggregations uh, and harmonizing of the models that you're getting as a result, as opposed to shipping all the data for some place to be centrally processed and analyzed, right? So federated right. learning in AIML is a very different model than what I was just talking about, which is more of the data analytics space where Again, you're trying to keep a transactional system optimized for transactions, keep the, the, the latencies as low as possible on your transactions. You don't want timeouts because somebody's running a full table scan. That's and it's, interesting. And it's, it's cheaper to ship the data to right. a place for analytics. Yeah, you're right. So there's a trade-off, right? If, if you're going to run the query remotely in the remote cluster, mm-hmm. then you're trading off latency and performance to the end user that's asking those hard questions. When you, because being federated training or federated AI, there's no real time or like user facing, re, you know, requirements or SLAs there needed that exactly. you're, you're training, you're waiting for the output. And then that's, that's not user facing yet. But if you are facing the user or some, there's some SLA to the questions uh, for the answers to be returned, from your questions, then we have to move that data, optimize that data in such a way that we can ask those questions, not be limited with those questions and get results back pretty quickly. There's a, does that make sense there? Exactly. And so what you're thinking about now, when you start thinking about federated systems, for instance, here's another example, somebody who's going to be doing like edge computing uh, tons of mobile devices, right? Here you're talking about SQLite, uh, you know, or, or something like that, an embedded uh, database in every handheld device, right? And because, again, of privacy, you may want to do the analytics locally against those devices, just sending up the result sets to some common aggregator, as opposed mm-hmm. to shipping everybody's phone <laughs> to the factory, as it were, right? <laughs> so I think that 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 once you start thinking in terms of a federated systems mindset, then you're thinking, well, do I want to move the data or do I want to move the processing? And and how do I want to localize the different aspects of what I'm trying to do in my overall data architecture? Right. No, I, I, that's really makes you, makes you want to think, I think this, this, this topic can really, Go deep. <laughs> exactly. To where well, we can get pretty lost. And, 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 and 
then that's just it. Like when I when I start talking to other people, and in fact, I started these conversations at the last real time analytics summit that we had mm-hmm. in 2023. We have the call for papers in 2024. That's open right now until October 31st. And so one of the things I was bringing up to some of the speakers then is, so if we think about this in terms of real time analytics, if we think about this in terms of platform architectures, we don't even really have some names for some of these meta architectures we're talking about mm-hmm. now. It's, this is why I thought like the stack is dead, long live the stack. Like we need to come up with a new language, a new grammar to describe these kind of architectures. Yeah, but we only know of the old ones and we have to repurpose them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. I mean, we're not going to abandon everything we've learned in the last 25 years, right? We're certainly not going to do that. But we we do need to come up with visions for how things are going to happen. When the Jamstack, uh, you know, upended a lot of what was going on in the web, Remember, everybody had been building things with an embedded SQL database, right? That was that was the way uh, a lot of uh, uh, websites were, were done. They were always done with this presumption that there's a SQL database at the heart of them all. Suddenly, that was no longer true, and people got to really radically rethink what was a website. Mm-hmm. And I think that when we think about that in terms of a data platform, we can radically rethink about where does data reside, what needs to be processing it. Um, like you were saying, SLAs, how fast do I really want to have it? A lot of times, for instance, when we uh, at a recent conference, I was talking to people who are very much into the data warehouse space, and mm-hmm. they're used to getting reports done in an hour to a day. And I was showing them, you know, Pino, and, and I was like, look, we can get those results, you know, kind of name that tune in one to 10 seconds. And they were like, you can't do that. <laughs> And I was like, uh, "Thank you for bringing that." That's, I, I love the show. I, right. When I was a kid, I love that show. Uh, in one note, that was the. I didn't really understand. Like anybody name a tune in one note. Anyway, yeah, uh, but uh, people didn't believe there. it was possible because they're so locked into their paradigms mm. and what they yeah. already know, right? Mm. And and I think that once once uh, and again we have this huge division in organizations where the data sciences team is over here, the data engineering team is over there, and yeah. they often don't talk with each other. And so you know people never, are- never will they ever either. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is more data teaming in twenty twenty three. There true. is I... there is a, a lot more of that, but we need to encourage more of that. And one of the ways mm. to make it them think about it is really what are we building and how do we want to name the components of this? And so you're right, there's going to be transactional processing systems and upstream from them, data gathering systems, whether IIoT or mobile and web apps or something like that, there's going to be some front-endian stuff. There's going Mm. to be transactions against it. There's going to be some data streaming, event streaming, stream processing in the middle of it. There's going to be analytics downstream and then some sort of dashboarding or window on the data even further downstream. Let's uh, let's let me let me take it back to the the term stack. Yes. Um, and there's a perspective that I wanted to ask you about this. Um, uh, let's say that I'm all in on AWS. Is right. that is you know, and I build my entire application or website or whatever it is based on AWS technology. Is that a stack? If if you're is only it? using, is it? I don't know. Well, I would argue that uh, let's say DynamoDB just in and of its, uh, itself. There's probably apps that you have that are using the DynamoDB SDK. Uh, all of those are going to be going through you know, CICD. You have the data pipelines just to get into Dynamo. 
Uh, and then uh, somewhere else, there's going to be Athena. There's going to be lambdas. There's going to there's so each each one of the major databases in and of itself has a kind of like a seven layer cake to finally get things into production to it, hmm. right? And each of those is kind of managed on its own cadence. Right. So so when when you think about stack like like the lamp stack, right. Their technologies that really work nicely together. They, in fact, they complement one another at some point, sometimes, right? And Correct. I think that's what AWS tries to do between its like separate products is that they make them really think of think of like the zero ETL kind of thing, right. where you know, Aurora to Redshift. That's you mm-hmm. know seamless integration. Uh, could technically be a stack because AWS enabled that really. If it, even though it was a typed integration, it's still an easy integration between between two systems. Um, yeah, and so this is like, you know, when I grew up, there was this whole uh, commercial, uh, you know, this ad program for Reese's peanut butter cups when they were first introduced. Hey, you got chocolate on my peanut butter. You got peanut butter on my chocolate, right? And yeah. there were two great tastes that taste great together. And complementary technologies have existed since the dawn of time, right? Like the database and the hard drive. Does mm. that make the, uh, a database and a hard drive a stack? Or are those just mm. complementary technologies, right. right? Now, you are correct in the sense that AWS, probably better than anybody on the planet, has made it as easy as possible to integrate their various uh, services together. Like when we were talking about those federated queries, they have it where you can do federated query architecture on Athena. You can spin up all your lambdas. You can query on S3 buckets and all the rest of it, right? So they they definitely have tried to make it as interoperable as possible. However, I will note that you have to use AWS components to do all of these kind of interactions, right? So that we're still not at a kind of like a true multi-cloud federated system. And, you know... Some of my research, uh, in fact, just before uh, talking with you today, I was going to pay this, like, I think it's like $68 to the uh, IEEE to get a paper that they have on on truly federated systems, you know, yeah. uh, cloud computing. But I think that that's kind of like orthogonal to the open source community these days, right, to pay for a standard. People expect to be able to just go to GitHub, find the API, and start coding, Right. So, so I think that until we have that kind of true interoperable multi-cloud federated systems, um, you know, nirvana, which I think mm-hmm. is going to take maybe another decade or two before we really see it happening, um, we're you're, you're going to have to take a look at things like you know the AWS ecosystem versus the Google Cloud ecosystem versus the Azure ecosystem. They're they're all going to try and lock you in to the way they believe this kind of federated systems model should work. Interesting. Um, let's go back to that topic uh, about 10 minutes ago about, you know, uh, Redis and the S3 and then the system that puts it together. Right? Yes. Um, the uh, As I think about it more, there are two ways of, of actually making that happen. There is the... Uh, where you put where the compute exists is either remote, mm-hmm. right, or local, right. And if it's local, it's replicated. There's replication involved because um, you're bringing that data in its shape 
and bringing it in in the local system to do that work, right? Um, and this, to be able to take advantage of the local systems optimization um, features, right? Um, I'd love to talk more about the importance of replication, um, sure. or if there, if there is an importance of replication. If you think about it, like in more general terms, you know, we we have a uh, Jamak, um, and you brought up data mesh, uh, talks about the anal analytical and operational data plane. And she calls mm -hmm. it the data divide. Right. Uh, in fact, I have a, I have a presentation on that. that I'm going to be delivering in a conference in the next couple of weeks, but this is the data divide where the, on one side, you have your operational databases, which is, which are your OLTP databases. Mm -hmm. And then there are your, um, analytical systems and there's a, a replication of data between your OLAP system or your OLTP systems to your OLAP uh, databases. And in between, or even at the end, there's a transformation step that, right. that does so that, that, that Way work. back in history, way back in history, you had a transactional system that was like for production. And then to do reporting, you kept usually like yesterday's backup on a separate system entirely, an identical cluster that was there for failover. Uh, but but because it was idle for most of the time that, you know, like the, there was no disaster happening, people said, well, why don't we just run analytics on the backup? Mm. <laughs> uh. <laughs> it, was a, it was an exact mirror, maybe 24 hours out of date, but they could run mm. analytics without impacting the production system. And even today, there's a lot of people that might be running a MongoDB or a Postgres or whatever, and they have a, you know, changed it to capture to a read-only replica. Mm. Right. So they can run all the analytics they want to against that because it's not going to be harming production. Precisely. Right. Well, 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 it'll harm your resilience. <laughs> well, oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, if that's, if that's your, if that's your disaster recovery backup, then yes, you, 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 you want to be very careful about that. But a lot of people, again, just make a read only replica to run analytics, but mm -hmm. even a, a, a read only replica to run analytics for a transactional database doesn't mean that that transactional database was designed for analytics. Right. And so uh, you get what you pay for there. Right. You know, so if it, if if you're trying to do full table scans on a transactional system, it may be slow. Right. And so this mm -hmm. is why people say, well, if I'm doing change data capture anyway, why don't I pump it to a design for purpose OLAP system? Precisely. Exactly. And I think that's an important thing to. To point out is that. um Doing analytics on an OLTP database is very twenty years ago, right? Yeah. <laughs> because it was just there. It was it was it was convenient, right? Um, and now that things are in clusters, as you said, each mm -hmm. each component in the stack, whatever stack you're using, is now a cluster in itself. Yes, implies more usage. Implies more. Um, uptime SLAs, it implies more data that you you just can't do that anymore. You have to include as part as of your data platform an OLAP part to it to be able to ask those harder questions about the data that's happening in your applications. Right. And with the federated systems concept, with this is your governing philosophy, each one of the clusters in your cluster of clusters is optimized for its purpose. Hmm. So rather than just using 
you know, my favorite SQL database to do everything because it's the one I knew and I grew up with. <laughs> <laughs> I choose the best OLTP database for this kind of transactional model. I choose the best event streaming pipeline in the middle. I choose the best downstream OLAP system to provide the results that I need, right? So that each one, rather than doing lowest common denominator, like the, that's the, that was the problem with the old federated query system was that it was the lowest common denominator way of querying across all the systems. Here, diving down into each one of these databases along the whole, um, you know, the whole pipeline or the whole stack, you know, whatever we want to call this. Again, I'm using federated systems, but that's, you know, we need to have even more specific grammar around this. But the whole mm. the whole way that data flows from origin of its transaction to its downstream analytics, each one of those places then becomes a point for design for purpose. Right. So within, within like, say, your stack. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of your letters in your acronym is going to be related to some kind of database, most likely. Even sure. if it's just, you know, an API, there's, there's something there that's holding your data and there's, it's optimized for certain types of workloads, right? Yeah. And I, I would even argue that there might be multiple database parts mm. of your stack so that on a front end, you might have a very fast NoSQL database for some elements of what you're trying to get done. And you may need to have really highly resilient, you know, transactional ACID compliant SQL databases for the transactions that really matter. So, so it, what I, what I think that, that people limit themselves to is the thinking that they have to make everything fit in one database. And I'm saying right. you don't have to do that anymore. Does, you know, if you really want the mobile app to be responsive, why are you saddling it with like a globally distributed, you know, very high consistency SQL database, mm. Mm. right? Like yes. that, that would be an anti-pattern. So, do, you know, choose for each element of what you're building the best thing for that part of your application architecture. Do you think the stack can span across like cloud regions and continents? I think it has to. And I think it has to, I mean, the architectures that we need to be conceiving of in 2023, right? And because a lot of what we're talking about, LAMP, et cetera, that goes back to 1998, right? right. So the architectures we're building in 2023 need to conceptually carry us through to 2025. Now, maybe maybe we're going to, I mean, you know, they don't have to be rock solid. We're going to be changing things every three to five years, you know, but we need to conceive of, for instance, multi-cloud architectures. We need to be conceiving of multi-entity uh, systems. So, yep. you know, think about consortia. Uh, you know, again, that's where a lot of this uh, distributed training models come from, mm. right? The federated training uh, is when all of these different hospital groups all have their own, let's say, cancer data, but they don't want to share the patient's information, right? So they, so that what they can share is the models around it, right? So right. we need to reconceive of how to, uh, how to take data beyond the enterprise. Exactly. So, so go, go, going back to the stack, um, real mm-hmm. quick, um, and then we'll, I want to, I want to expand this or extrapolate this that idea with two, two multi-region um, uh, perspective, right? Right. So we, we have a stack. It's deployed 
most likely in one region, right? Um, you don't want to put a stack. I'm guessing. I'm, I'm. You don't want to put the stack. Actually, you don't want to stretch that stack to multiple regions because in one stack is there consistency guarantees, and and when except for the data plane, which is or the data, the, the data itself can be replicated across multiple regions because it's already built in. Think, think you know, you're, you're replicating from OLTP to OLAP database. Mm-hmm. That re- replication is eventually, you know, creates eventual consistency, which allows you to stretch your stack to multiple right. regions right. beyond globally as well, right? So what you're what you're creating is now that you going back to that data divide. Mm-hmm. A div- divide is just um, can be a global divide in, between regions, and in the middle you can actually create um, a topology of locations from which you could query your data. Let's say I have some data that originates from a stack in the Americas, and then the Mia first you know, wants that data as well. Right, um, but most likely they will want that for analytical purposes, right? Unless they want to have their own application stood up another stack in the MIA. So think about that. So you have yes. a stack in the US, you have a stack in Europe, you replicating data asynchronously across those regions mm-hmm. and you are eventually consistent with data between them, right? Right. So you're you so both in your operations, you have to, re- you know, you have to re- reconcile that, um, that consistency. But on the OLAP, you can actually just work as is. Yeah. So fortunately, in 2023, there are many databases, both SQL and NoSQL, that know how to span geographic regions, right? So uh, uh, definitely you have Cockroach on the SQL side, uh, mm-hmm. Spanner. On the NoSQL side, you have Aerospikes, got some really cool stuff for multi-region deployment, including GDPR compliance. So, you know, maybe there's data that needs to stay in the EU, can't, can't mm-hmm. leave, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can also do it doesn't it's not quite as out of the box, but you can do similar things with Apache Cassandra or SolidDB, right? Where their multi-region deployment is designed in the architecture. And then the governance of that is still, you know, that that's some assembly required uh in terms of forethought of like what's allowed to, to go between regions. Mm-hmm. But what that enables is that like I'm thinking about a particular mapping company that, for instance, if you're looking up the map of Tokyo, but you're currently in London, you should be looking at a London-based replica of that of of the, that map. Right. Right. Now, maps fortunately don't change every second. Right. So we believe that the Tokyo street grid is probably going to be consistent between a minute. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, then maybe the traffic conditions will change, like you know, a minute, five minutes. You know, so traffic conditions should change on that map box. But but generally the tiles themselves the the basic map will will remain the same. So when you're in London and you're looking that up, you should be looking at it from a London replica. Now you get on the plane, you get off the plane in Tokyo, then you your context, your mobile uh, device should be looking at the Tokyo local uh, 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 data set. You shouldn't have to go back to London because you as a user 
are based in London, right? right. It's based upon your geographic location. Mm-hmm. Um, but that allows you to do really fast, um, uh, low latency updates of that mapping program so that when you're traveling in a car and you have that up on your dashboard, hopefully like hands-free, uh, you know, mounting of your, uh, of, of your maps, you shouldn't have any sort of delay that those should be really low latency, uh, paints happening on your phone. Yep. Uh, so that, that kind of stuff already is happening. I know for sure. Um, and what I think that we're, we're going to be seeing more and more of that is where, you know, again, when you, when you do, when you move a person around the globe, they should be connected to the local data set. The real questions come in to be, for instance, let's say you are a U.S. user and you're doing activities in, in the EU, and then you move back to the United States. How much should, how much of your data should travel with you? Where, you know, and, and, I think that these are, again, not technical issues so much as policy issues. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you, I mean, all this stuff around data mesh, it's not the technical technical portion of setting up the data mesh that's the tough thing. It's the policy. Right. I completely agree. Let's uh, let's bring this back to Pino because I think sure. we've, we've, uh, we've covered a lot of the questions. We have kind of a good understanding of, of what these terms mean. So let me ask you a question. Is Pino a cluster of clusters? In a way it is because if you think, well, uh, but let me, let me, let me talk about how Pino is architected, but then tell you why I would discount it as a federated system because mm. the Pino architecture itself is, is complex. You have, for instance, brokers that are taking care of incoming uh, requests you have the data servers, which are storing the segments. You then also have an Apache Helix controller and Zookeeper, right? So, and each of these, for instance, are clusters of clusters, right? So the brokers are a cluster, the servers are a cluster. But holistically, Apache Pino is designed to be a one thing, right? And so I would still consider that in and of itself a single system. Now, if you were then to connect a Pino cluster to a Kafka cluster, that's what I'd be considering a federated system, right? Oh, and then okay. upstream from Kafka, you might have Flink and you might have, uh, you know, again, a transactional system, whether Postgres or, you know, right. uh, could be, a, again, a, a Cassandra. Uh, so, so there's, that's to me, the end-to-end architecture is more the federated systems. But yes, yeah. Pino is a complex beast in and of itself. It, it it is. I wouldn't call it a federation though, like because it's designed to be a, a single thing. Um, and the analogy I was using to, in, in my head was Star Trek, right? Mm. That you had like the Enterprise was a single ship, right? And there's different departments in the Enterprise. There's engineering and security, right? But they're all working together as a single ship in the Federation, right? And then Starfleet was comprised of all these different ships, each of which had their own crews, and the crews were comprised of heterogeneous types of individuals. Some were humans, some Klingons, some Vulcan, etc. So each one was comprised of multiple different pieces, but again, they were designed to be individually operating holes. Each of these starships were mm-hmm. operating on their own. And I think that that was the kind of analogy I was trying to make here, is that like each of our enterprises has this kind of end-to-end architecture with its component systems. There's a sick bay, 
there's a warp core, right? Mm. There's a there's a computer, there's a holodeck, right? Each of us are building out our systems and they all have a kind of a common shape to them. And, and they're all made of these very diverse individual components, but hopefully they're going to propel us for the next couple of decades into the yeah. interview. A nice, nicely, nicely put there. That was, that was nice. <laughs> but let me, let me, let me ask you this. Cause, um, I know a little bit about Pino, uh, as you know, I were yes. also were Star Trek. Um, unlike the, the Starship, uh, Federated <laughs> spaceship, sorry, I'm a Star Wars guy. <laughs> um, uh, it can't, Pino has the ability to actually act like a cluster of clusters because yes. each component can actually scale up and down elastically depending on what you need, right? right. Um, and and um, and you know something that's like a, a static as a shape of a starship can can't do that isn't as as elastic as what you would say. Yeah, um, they, they so is a very act- unique beast, I think, in what in, in some sense. Exactly, like they they don't usually throw on a, a third and fourth warp nacelle onto the st- uh, onto the Enterprise, right? But but you're correct that that's how Apache Pino is somewhat different, maybe a little bit more Borg like in the sense it can assimilate more components. So yes, you can scale out. What's really cool, I think, about the servers is that the servers can even be heterogeneous, so you can have some really fast. Uh, data servers for, let's say, your freshest data, they can be running on local NVMe, mm-hmm. really ultra fast for com- compute. And you could even have S3 buckets if you wanted to do some slower hybrid um, uh, queries. Uh, and so, but and we've solved internally, see, the, this was the problem with the federated systems, because it was just kind of like a meta query on top of all these different data systems. We've actually designed uh, hybrid storage, tiered storage to work uh, so that you're, so that you will get better performance out of it than if you were just querying uh, an S3 bucket from like uh, an external system. That mm-hmm. in and of itself is worth a whole podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How we do tiered storage, like that yeah. in and of itself, is really worth it because that would be a fun one. Yeah, yeah, and I, I swear uh, there's better people to talk about it than me. I am amazed <laughs> by the genius of the people that we have here. But one of the ways of of doing it fast is, that, for instance, there, there's there's an index in the you know that we have the star tree index, which kind of does a pre-aggregation so that uh, mm. it it can have some fast figures to you before having to scan and chunkify all that data in S3. Yeah. So, so that's my favorite index, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's incredible stuff. See, and I think that that's the kind of thing that we, uh, you know, again, just like we talked about before, you need to understand where and how you're doing your compute. You know, do you need to pre compute some of these things, just like pre cubing, right? Uh, And pre joins. We really, uh, because we also, for instance, support now query time joins. So, with great power comes great responsibility. And just because you can do a query time joint doesn't mean that you want to. So we we really need people to be thinking about how they want to organize and store their data ahead of time because you have some really powerful tools in, in Apache Pino. Um, I kind of want to close on this, this uh, um, I don't know, theory or yes. fact, if not. Um, I'd say that systems today, especially today, expect clusters of clusters now. Cause, oh, uh, absolutely. Yes. Can't, yeah. Cause you can't, 
if I were to talk to a service and, you know, a user service and it's not a cluster of clusters, I lose things. I, I lose the ability to get all the data that I actually, I mean, I can't really get some of my questions answered. I lose resilience. I, I, I lose, um, I lose, uh, trust in, in the whole system. Um, is would you agree with that, or maybe not? I mean, maybe I'm just making. No, sense. I, I think I think okay. So, for instance, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And if everything mm-hmm. is a highly available, highly redundant cluster, except for one, uh, there was a, uh, an outage I'm thinking about right now, and the database that, that they had used in that database was distributed across three different data centers, and each data center had ten different nodes, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and that was to make sure that if any one data center went down, the other two would have enough com- compute power to be able to keep up with the daily load. But there was one cloud service and I'm, I'll keep guilty members, you know, names anonymous here, but there was one cloud service that had a single point of failure. And that was the thing that broke that they couldn't do distribution on. And so th- they had done a fantastic job. And it, unfortunately they were able to get it, um, fixed within about an hour of the outage happening. But see, that's the kind of thing where it's like for the want of a nail, for that one component that's not highly available, you're right. You can bring down an entire system that was otherwise perfectly designed for high availability. Peter, always fun to talk to you. Um, I can't wait till the next thing you throw over the wall at me to talk about. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm looking forward to the next ones, and uh, let's uh, as again, let's do it again, and uh, make sure you're not late late for the next uh, meeting that you have. So, oh no, no, we're going to be fine here. All right, you guys have a great day, and uh, my best to everybody in the listening audience. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.